Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. break from uh, our normal study that we were doing. You've heard me say uh, over the last year or so that you are living in the days of an attempted revolution. It is probably time, if not already time, to remove the word attempted. You are living in the days of a, a moral transformation that is not slow. Revolution is the appropriate word. Don't just think pastor is exaggerating. I can tell, assure you that the people who are at the helm of the ship guiding culture, they know what they are after. Revolution is the word that they are using. And so if that is the case, what do we as the church do? How do we as believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you live in days like this? Well, the full answer to that would be, books. There's lots to talk about in terms of strategies and tactics and whatnot. But one thing that is important and encouraging to know is that our primary work, not our only, but our primary work doesn't change. The primary work of the church, we gather, we go to heaven together, that doesn't change. We gather together and what God has given in worship and all of those parts of worship, that is the primary way that we fight. The, the preaching of the word, the singing of God's truths, uh, or participating in the ordinances, instruction in the home, the public reading of scripture, etc. These ways that God has given us to worship, that is the primary way that we, we, we take part in this battle. There's a reason why when we join together on uh, Lord's Day services and such, what we don't do is take 50 weeks a year to talk about current events and what is the Christian response to them. There's a reason why in, in the chaotic days we're living, we come together and our normal routine is we take verse after verse after verse from the Bible because that is equipping us for the battle. Every verse of the Bible, what we believe about justification by faith, what we're studying in Romans 12 when we get back to our normal routine there and the spiritual gifts, all of it is preparing us for the battle. But it is the case from time to time, we need to stop and talk about some of the things uh, that are luring souls into destruction. Things that are even luring believers away which by the way is just imitating the practice we see in the New Testament. So in the city of Colossae, there was a heresy. There was a philosophy that was threatening uh, to lure believers uh, in, into falling from Christ. So what did Paul do? He wrote and he addressed the heresy. Same thing happens in Galatians, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. There's a pattern that we do need to address particular sins at times, but also particular philosophies that are luring and seducing souls. 
So that, that is some of the reason behind the why of what we're doing in these three weeks that we're taking a break from our normal study. With that, let's look to Romans 1. Verses 26 and 27 particularly are going to address uh, the subject matter for today. But, but for the sake of uh, context, I'm going to back us up to verse 18. In verse 18, we're told that God's wrath... His judgment is actively coming from heaven now. It's not just that it's going to be, it is now. Verses 19 to 23 tell us why. God has revealed himself and mankind has rejected him. Starting in verse 24, it begins to be described, here are some of the judgments that God is giving from heaven. So look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Let's ask for God's help. Please join me in prayer. O sovereign, holy God, we are drawing near to you because you are the treasure you have called us to yourself. So we, we who are here and you have saved us by faith in your son, we are looking forward to this kingdom. But Lord, you have given us a task in this day that we live. We're to be faithful. We're to be salt and light. We're to speak truth. And God, it is our desire that before we die, we win as many souls as possible to come into your kingdom and have eternal life. Lord, we want your name to be glorified. We want the name of your son, the Lord Jesus, to be exalted to the highest place. We want souls to have eternal gladness. So Lord, we pray that you will use us, you will empower us, you will equip us, train our hands for war, bless us, O God, to be able to be useful in this world as we battle ideas, as we we speak your gospel, 
As we love and serve and forgive and obey, we pray, oh God, that you will bless us to be useful in this time. And I ask God that this morning as we talk through yet another philosophy, another ideology that's luring souls to destruction, we pray, oh God, that you'll give grace to give us understanding and see your truth with clarity and see the beauty of your truth. And also, O oh Lord, that you would equip us for defending and speaking your truth. So everything that needs to happen for that, God, we, we pray that you'll give it. Please cause your spirit to fall on us, O oh Lord, to awaken not only understanding of your truth, but I pray, O oh God, that you'll also arouse within us a great zeal that wants to speak your gospel and your truth. We pray for our little ones in the next room as they learn your word as well. Please bless, protect them. Please, oh God, bless all that's gonna happen here. Bless me to preach. Bless all of us as we worship, sitting beneath your feet and your truth. And we ask it through the name of Christ. Amen. In 1990, a feminist professor at UC Berkeley named Judith Butler wrote a book titled Gender Theory, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity. It was an academic work. And in this work, she, quote, called for the dissolution of the binary male-female structure of human existence, okay? Which to say that more simply, okay, this is what it's referring to. Binary refers to two. When we read in the Bible that God created uh, humans to be male or female, that's two, okay? Two, that is there. She was calling for the, the eradication of the idea that humans are only male or female, and further was calling for the eradication of the idea that uh, each individual's gender expression coincides with their biological sex. To say it another way, that you could be born biologically a male, but your gender could be female or 107 other kinds of genders that might be invented. When we talk about uh, gender theory, that's what we're talking about. That's what we are addressing in this, in this title. Now, sometimes we, we, when we talk about what is happening in academia, um, I get it, there can be a little bit of this just like, who cares? <laughs> There's always insanity that is happening in academia in some per, you know, university somewhere. I can't even keep up with it all, okay? Well, here is one of the reasons why we all need to be aware, at least to some degree, what is happening in academia. It's because when there is another philosophy or ideology that sweeps through our culture or other cultures in the world, not every time, but a whole lot of the time, where the idea came from is it was cooked up in a think tank or at some university, and then it makes its way into the culture. Very often, it's cooked up in some leftist enslaved university. Harvard, Berkeley, IU. I'm not trying to just be mean and cherry pick some universities. I'm just speaking some facts here of what happens in these kinds of things. What consistently happens is that some professor who's trying so hard to find something new, to have their name remembered in history, 
uh, comes up with some crazy theory. I think I've even used this example before. Some crazy theory that, uh, hey, it turns out humans don't really need oxygen. And then writes a book, 300 pages long, with all these really sophisticated sounding language and doctored statistics, uh, all these kinds of things, arguing humans don't really need oxygen. By the time it's all said and done, it's some theory that my 10-year-old can see as absurd. All of the critical race theory stuff, if you remember whenever we've spent some time talking about that ideology, all of that was cooked up in academia. All of this has its origination, a lot of times, at the university level. Now, when I say originated, you understand what I mean. I understand, I'm saying that at the human level, because we know ultimately where these ideas come from. First Timothy four, they are doctrines of demons, the enemy influencing the thinking of humans. But this gender theory, it, it, it was edgy, it was attractive, it, it caught on because it, it fit the narrative, it, it fit the worldview that is often held in, in academia. And so it became sexy at the academic level. People found it riveting and so it spread. There's another group of society that often finds the uh, crazy, sometimes insane ideas of academia to be appealing and that is oftentimes politicians. And when the right politician finds an idea to be attractive, well then Hollywood and celebrities grab on to this idea. <laughs> and once Hollywood grabs onto one of these ideologies and embraces it, it's very often a given, this is going to spread. Because you have more things that's happening in all of this. Another of the great sins of our day, so this is just in large measure, one of the great sins of our day is that parents are abdicating their responsibility for raising their children and are handing it off to the greedy arms of the public education system. Which, by the way, okay, oftentimes also finds the ideas of academia to be riveting and attractive. And so what happens very often, children, youth, teens, they come home from school where they have been oftentimes fed a worldview that coincides with this. They come home from school and have zero significant interaction with their parents. And they might spend all evening, maybe five hours a night, immersed in the world of social media, in their phones, devices, tablets, and such, where they peruse one social media platform after another. And what are they engaging? What they're engaging is one celebrity idol after another preaching a consistent message. The consistent message always has some similarities. It a lot of times goes like this. Your parents are idiots, okay? Which when you're a teenager is not a hard sell because you're already, you know, wrestling with some things naturally. And also, okay, every movie and uh, Disney show they've been watching since they were kids have preached that message hard. Parents are idiots. Kids are the wisest people in the universe, okay? So your parents are idiots and the modern version of that goes, your parents are all racist, bigots, homophobes, transphobes, xenophobes, more words to come. And what we really need is, and then they promote their idea. And so it is that an ideology spreads across 
the land. That's kind of an overly simplistic way of explaining it all, you understand. But I, I think it is helpful for us to kind of recognize how ideas move. And a similar thing has happened with these ideas of gender theory. Now, if you are a Christian and you read the Bible, you're trying to live as a follower of Christ, then, then you know there's just instantaneously that these kinds of things we're mentioning with gender theory, they're obviously opposed to scripture, but we do need to talk about why. We need to talk about why, not only because we, we ourselves are to believe the scriptures, hold to the scriptures, and live them, we are also called to engage. We are called to be God's speakers of truths in a lost world. There is work that God has called us to do. We, we need to see ourselves not as vacationers in this life. We are soldiers called into battle, the battle of ideas. The battle for souls, the battle for the message of Christ to reign and for King Jesus to be worshiped as he is uh, worthy of. And so it is there need to be some times that we talk about things that we may not just be in the mood to talk about. I get it. You may have woke up this morning and really wanted some encouraging, riveting kind of sermons. Believe me, I think I would rather be in Romans 12, uh, continuing to teach through those things. All right. But it's the fact that soldiers a lot of times need training that they're not in the mood for in a particular day. Believers, this is the day in which God created us to live. This is, these, these are some of the battles that are on our doorstep. We must know what the Bible says and how we are to winsomely and humbly, but boldly and clearly engage. So I wanna spend some time today talking about these things. I'm gonna tell you about some more resources you can study to get further equipped for this conversation. But let me divide our time today into uh, four main parts. First, I'm, I'm gonna spend a bit of time talking about the primary ideas of gender theory and where it came from. Secondly, we'll talk about biblical foundations that address the truth in the way that God created the world. Three, we'll talk about some common questions and objections uh, that are being raised against uh, the Bible's principles. And then fourth, I'll give some applications. So let's get started. Number one, let's talk a bit about gender theory and where it came from. Gender theory comes from a long line of ideas that came before us. So you understand that's the case all the time. Anytime there's a philosophy now, it came from ideas and philosophies from history. Gender theory comes from a long line of philosophers, specifically in this case, psychoanalyst, sexual revolutionist, who subscribed to Nietzscheism. Frederick Nietzsche is one of those philosophers from history you do need to be at least somewhat familiar with. Not because uh, there's any encouragement to hold to what he said, but because he has uh, greatly influenced Western thought. Uh, Nietzsche's primary ideas, you may remember this from high school, college classes you took, Nietzsche's primary idea was along the lines of, God is dead, we killed him, and therefore, there are no moral absolutes. He further went on to say that Christianity is repressive and the source of really all of society's ills. 
What there needs to be is a removal of all of evil Christianity's repressive laws, ideas, and taboos. And for our talk specifically, okay, there needs to be unlimited, unrestrained freedom to do what you please sexually. And when, when he called for unlimited, unrestrained freedom, he, he, he did mean that. That also meant some of the most horrendous acts of pedophilia that most of us don't even want to know exist. His ideas were incredibly influential and led to a long line of philosophers and specifically in this case, sexual revolutionists who took that part of his idea and continued to develop them further all the way down until you get to the book that I uh, told you about in the introduction, the, the, the way that it's been formulated in our day. But with that, um, let, let me recommend some further reading to you um, if you want to get to know some more things. This is a little book called Gender Ideology, an incredibly helpful book. Um, you can take a look at it. It's really not that long, probably only about three hours worth of reading or something there. One of the most helpful things that the author does in that book is uh, take you through history to the long line of philosophers and revolutionists um, who have uh, come to this and been influencing academia. Gender theory comes as an outflow of critical theory. So if you remember when we talked about a year ago or so about critical theory, critical theory comes from Marxism. Critical theory is the idea that all of society is explainable in the categories of oppressors and oppressed. And so it, another kind of logical outflow, if you buy into critical theory in general, in our day, critical race theory is the most specific way it's been bought into. Another natural outflow of that is to start applying that to other categories. So if you buy into the category that all society is just based on oppressors and oppressed, well, what's another group that these, these folks are saying are the oppressed? It would be those who claim that their gender expression doesn't line up with the oppressors. So the sexual orientation. So that's how it flows right out of this. That's why we're seeing this so hot right now in this culture. So why now and not 10 years ago? We're in a culture that did embrace critical theory and just another natural step then is applying it further to gender theories. Something also noteworthy is that in the long line of philosophers and sexual revolutionists who have influenced academia getting us to this point, more than half of them personally engaged in molesting of children and then justified it that it was for science. It's, it was for science, so it's okay. If you say it's for science and you use the word science a lot, you can do anything you want to. And you just claim science. A great many of them uh, not only personally engaged in the molesting of children, but then worked to try to remove the criminalization of pedophilia in their days. This is a depraved ideology, but nobody knows that. Okay. Nobody knows that. That's why you and I need to know that so that we can be telling the culture where this stuff comes from. Gender theory espouses that your biological sex, so if you're born, you know, being born male or female, is not to determine your gender expression. They've hijacked the word gender. 
They claim that all gender is socially constructed, which means that humans invented what it means to be a man and invented what it means to be a woman. And we need to get rid of all of the ideas that were previously there. So it is atheistic at its just very root. And in the acronym that I'm sure you've, you're becoming aware of, of the LGBTQIA plus acronym, the plus represents the fact that they expect there to be more genders that will be invented and uh, come up with. In 2014, Facebook listed 56 possible genders that you could align yourself with. By 2018, the list was up to 71 possible genders with the explanation that it will certainly keep growing. All right, so now I've talked about some of the primary ideas. We're all thinking that's crazy. Surely it's not catching on. In 2009, the Quebec government in Canada passed the Quebec Policy Against Homophobia, declaring, now listen to the language very carefully, heterosexism will not be tolerated. Now here's what that means. It means this, if you were to simply say a sentence like, Normal marriage is between a man and a woman. I didn't even give a command there. It's just the statement, normal marriage is between a man and a woman. You just broke the law and are subject to punishment. The UN and the, U in the EU have pledged to implement laws demanding that citizens call one another by their preferred pronouns and all language explaining basic ideas that marriage is between a man and a woman is now classified as hate speech and is punishable by law. The World Health Organization, WHO, has embraced this theory and is now publishing information that this is a public service, that everybody needs to know this for the sake of public mental health. In California, now we're coming to the United States. In California, care, care providers can face criminal charges for refusing to call someone by their preferred pronouns. That's America, and it is illegal to say words. In New York City, if you misgender someone, you can face up to a year in prison. Numerous cases across the nation right now, Ohio, Texas, etc. There are cases where parents are losing custody of their children for disagreeing with their child's transition. And they're simply trying to stop them from mutilating their bodies, losing custody of their children. And in what is probably the most destructive in all of this in the United States, the teachers union has now embraced gender theory theory, hence why across the nation just here recently, little booklets like the one that I read to you an excerpt out of last week were distributed. Another one that Shelley just told me about just last night, the head of the American um, Federation of Teachers um, was addressing the, the reality that some states are passing law so that transgenderism and gender theory will not be taught in schools. The head of this association declared this is propaganda, misinformation, be looking for that word a lot more now. Misinformation. And this is, th these are the kinds of things war starts over these kinds of matters. Yeah, it's catching on. You know, we Christians, we always know that the next, the next opposition 
may be just around the corner. It is very possible that this is where the next wave will come from. We don't know that. Maybe it'll pass. Doesn't look like that's the direction we're heading, but maybe. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's always possible that here's where the next one is going to come from. I mentioned to you last week that this cultural moment will pass. But before it does, a lot of heads might roll. Look at the nations and empires of history. Hundreds of ideologies that we now look back on and think, what a bunch of idiots. They've come and they've gone. But in their day, when they were hot, that ideology was used as the reason for imprisoning and even killing Christians because they opposed it. Okay, and then the world moved on to the next insanity of the next day. Well, Christian, here is one of the next insanities of our day. Well, secondly, let, let's talk about some of the biblical foundations. I know that if you are a follower of Christ, I know that as I say some of these things, this is very clear. This is very clear, but let me show you some of the places in scripture where this is addressed. And I'd like to give the encouragement I'd like to give the encouragement that uh, if you uh, would uh, maybe in the back of your Bibles in some of those places where there's a blank page or something, you might jot down a little, a little subheading of gender theory, transgenderism, and list some of these places from Scripture where you can see this. So we begin. The first most significant place we begin is where we spent the entirety of our, our time last week. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. When God created mankind, he created them male and female. He gave uh, each of the sexes strengths, weaknesses, and distinctions in his design. There is, in general, difference in anatomy. In general, different emotional makeup. And concretely, a difference in God's will for how each sex is to live out their God-given roles. Scripture says men are to act like men. Women are to act like women. Men are not to act like women, and etc. This movement of the gender theory is at its heart a rebellion against God's will, God's order he established in creation, and God's law. But let me show you some other places as well. We can make our way to the law. In Deuteronomy 22, 5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, why, why did the law address that? Okay, listen. These things we see today, we sometimes get confused. This isn't the first time in history this stuff has come. Okay, this has been there in history, even if it's not always been there as prevalently as it is right now. The, the law of God addresses uh, order in the world, God's will, God's design, and it foresaw days like this one. Now, there would be other places we could turn to in the law. So, for instance, there are quite a few places in the law that would say the principle that I'm about to tell, but I'll tell it from just one place. There's that um, strange sounding verse in the law that says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, sounds strange, but here's the meaning, okay? You are not to do that which is deviant. You are not to do that which is contrary to nature. You, you, you are not to break 
God's order and design, and, and, and that can be applied in a whole lot of different ways. To not do that which is deviant is a principle that applies a whole lot of directions. Now, so I shared a verse from the law. Now, this is not legitimate, but you will talk to some people who would say, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament. That's back when God was real mean and, you know, everything's different now. So that doesn't count. Well, um, you know, recently we took 10 weeks on Wednesday nights to study through the law and how do we interact with the law in this new covenant as believers, okay? That is a misunderstanding of the law to think if it's in the Old Testament, then it doesn't count and all those kinds of things. The law does still speak today. It does still address how we live and principles of God's order is still there. But if we ask the question, well, does the New Testament have anything to say on the matter? Yes, it does. We began in Romans chapter one. Let me, let me ask you to turn your attention there again. Romans chapter one, we're told that part of God's judgment is that he has given um, mankind, certain cultures in different uh, times with more prevalency and such over to, look at the language, degrading, it's a powerful word, shameful, embarrassing, vile, degrading passions. And then he describes some of these degrading passions for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, when you think about that verse, you can see very clearly that it is addressing homosexuality, for instance, but you, you also notice it's addressing more than that. Any way that God's natural order is corrupted, tampered, deviated from, that becomes uh, sinful. It is sinful to abandon the natural function and the natural desire that God created in male and female. That's kind of an important principle, one of those maybe to jot down. Let me say it again. It is evil to abandon the natural function of sex, that is what he's talking about, and the natural desire, sexual desire, that God designed in male and female. In fact, it's not just that it is sinful. It is that, but the text is saying more than that. It is saying that it is actually in itself an act of judgment that anybody would even want those things. All right, but then there would be other voices, and let me make this clear. These would not be Christian voices, okay? But you've heard this before. There would be other voices who would say, okay, yeah, so Paul thought that, but you know, Paul was a chauvinist and he didn't get everything right. He was just a man, okay? What we really want to know is, did Jesus say anything about that? Now, let me just make clear, that's not legitimate. That is misunderstanding the Bible, okay? Every word in the scripture is the word of God. The idea that we can only believe what Jesus said, that's insanity. There's a reason why scripture says, God says that the scriptures are his word. But if we ask the question, did Jesus ever address these things? The answer is again, yes. And that is helpful. If you'll flip over to Matthew 19 for a second. Matthew 19. This is a passage we referred to last week as well. There's an important principle that comes up here. Matthew 19. I'm going to read starting in verse 3. Jesus says, ask a question about marriage and watch what he says. It's not just what he says. It's the principles that he shows in what he says. Matthew 19. Look at verse 3. 
Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, watch how he begins. Have you not read? Okay, that's a rebuke. That's an indictment. Why have you not read your Bible? Have you not read? And then he goes on to quote the scripture. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Genesis 1, 26 and 27, verse 5. And said, for this reason, now he's quoting Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you see the principles that Jesus establishes? This is really important. Jesus looks back to the original pattern, male and female, and God's design in marriage and says, that's the pattern with authority that then speaks to the rest of this age. He, Jesus also says that any change to God's pattern, what is it? It is a deviation. It is a corruption. It is a sinful distorting of God's design. He says that regarding divorce. The principle applies even further than that. You are not allowed to change what God ordained in authority as the pattern. Any deviation from that is corrupting. It is, a, it is deviant to break from God's design and order. So it should be very obvious the things that we have just mentioned. But it really is the job of the Christian a lot of times to say obvious things. Because worldviews, these empty base ideologies of history and of our day, they make people forget obvious things. Again and again, a lot of times what, what our job to do is, is sometimes it's to say things like, I can't believe I have to say this, but, and then we say obvious things. There are some places in scripture that show those. So if we ask, does the Bible address these matters? The answer is absolutely. Genesis, the foundations, the law, God clarifying his will. If we were to keep going, we could have seen things in the Psalms, like Psalm 139. We could have seen some things in the prophets, but we see things uh, in the New Testament and even out of the lips of Jesus in the gospels. Now, number three. Let's talk a bit about some of the common um, questions about what the Bible says and even objections that some may raise. If we are going to be speaking truth to the world, then we are also going to have to be um, uh, answering questions that people will bring. One of the biggest arguments that is being used against the Bible's teaching right now is this one. You Christians say that God made humans male and female, but some people are born and they're not male or female. Some people are born intersex, okay? And they often don't finish the argument, but what the implied rest of the argument is, is that, so that means that there's not the reality of a binary male-female structure of human existence. But that argument falls it falls in at least two ways I'm going to mention to you. I'll bet if you give some more time to thinking through it, you'll see some more ways. But let me mention two ways that it falls. First, logically. First, logically, it's not a sound argument. Saying that a rare case where someone is born with a physical abnormality, for instance, is a justification for gender theory would be exactly like, let's say a parent told their child to listen to me, and the child responded, well, some people are born without ears. 
Well, that's not a legitimate argument. Okay, so the implied rest of that argument would be, some people are born without ears, so I'm not gonna use mine. And the child has that conversation while they use their ears, okay? So in the argument there for the male and female, okay, this similar kind of thing is there. Gender theory wants to reject male and female biology while using male and female biology, okay? Like it's the same thing, it falls apart. But additionally, th th this next argument that I'll show you here, you might think of this as one of the ways that uh, creation uh, declares what scripture declares. There's consistency. Uh, creation affirms what the Bible says. So it is true that there are around 40 physical abnormalities that a baby can be born with in regard to their sexual organs. These are extremely rare. The modern statistics that you're going to hear, and by the way, one of the groups that is promoting these statistics the most is Planned Parenthood. That ought to raise a few alarm signals there. But the modern statistics, they're trying to beef these numbers up to make it sound like this is just all the time. But it's, they're doctored numbers because they're including things that aren't legitimate. When you start it, you always got to ask the question when somebody gives a statistic, what was your criteria for the study? You always got to investigate some of the premises there. The actual statistics, of these physical abnormalities that a baby can be born with is only around one in 5,000 babies of having any kind of abnormality. That is 0.0002%. It gets better. Even amongst those, in the majority of cases, it is still evident, visibly, if the child is male or female. It is only the tiniest fraction of that already low fraction that I just gave you that a baby is born and it is not visibly clear if the baby is male or female. And first of all, we need to be able to come to grips with that. This is a cursed world. Romans 5, we're born in Adam. We're born in Adam. We're born in a broken world where we are longing for the Lord Jesus to come and bring redemption. Every one of us are born into this world where there are certain things wrong with our bodies. It's just all different and in different ways. This is a cursed world. Sadly, there are babies who are born without arms or legs. It's a cursed world. But the existence of babies who are born without legs does not give a legitimate justification for adults who have healthy legs to then amputate a limb, which, by the way, is a real thing. It is a real thing. And it fits right in with all of this um, true self-chaos that we are talking about. It is a real thing that there are folks who are born with healthy limbs, but they say, my real self, my truest self is a disabled person. And they are convincing doctors to remove a limb. That's not a joke. That is a real thing. Now, we need to make clear, we need to have pity. We need to have pity for folks um, who come to a place like that. Doesn't give any license, but we do are to have pity. But you do see that it is something exactly the same as taking that same kind of idea and applying it to male and female. But let me come back here. here, here this is a broken world. There are some babies who are born and it is not visibly clear if they are male and female, but here's the rest of the story. The chromosomes do. 
The chromosomes do tell whether the child is male or female. Nearly every single cell in your body declares male or female. Your bones could be dug up a hundred years after you die and it could be determined if you are male or female. God has written this into every cell of your body. Now, are there some chromosomal abnormalities? There are, but even these fall into known categories. They fall into known categories that have been known for a long time of male and female. The argument doesn't work. But another question Another question, another objection that someone might raise would be something along the lines of, okay, pastor, you know, you've, you've convinced me, I, I am to believe the Bible, but we're supposed to be loving, and so we're supposed to be nice, so that means we ought to just not be saying things that disagree with people because that would make them feel bad and that would be not nice. We need to understand some of the ways that that doesn't work. The single most loving thing that you can possibly do for a person is to lead them to eternal life. Eternal life comes through the truth that there must be a turning from sins, a turning of the heart to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The most loving thing that you can do is to tell someone what someone told you. Your sin may not have been that one. Someone told you, you are a sinner. You have rebelled against the living God. You deserve hell. You need to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is to do that as well. And that involves speaking truth. But we also need to understand this reality. It is, it is an unloving, it is a hateful thing to do to stay silent when we know truth. Society turns to chaos when sanity is lost. If you want to know why it is a loving thing for Christians to seek to influence the culture in which they live so that society's laws are ordered after the law of Christ, all you need to do is go read the book of Judges again, remind yourself and go, oh yeah, that's what happens when people do whatever they want. The book of Judges is a disturbing book in the Bible. Okay, I talked last week about the fact that stories teach worldview if you read the book of Judges and it's very disturbing to you and you think that's not really what the world is like, you need to ask the question, why do I think that? You know what the answer is? Because I have formed my worldview from 10,000 stories of the world in Disney that told me the world's like this. It's real happy and it's all good. And then you read the book of Judges and it's disturbing. The book of Judges is God saying, here's what the world is really like when, and here's the refrain that is repeated over and over again. This disturbing book with, with great sin and the, the account of the Levite and the concubine, go read that one again as much as it turns your stomach, see all of it. And then here's the theme verse that's repeated over and over again. You have it, memory, you have it memorized. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. When every man does what is right in their own eyes, you get insanity. You get chaos. You get pain and misery and death and brokenness. This is God's world and God's world was made to run in God's way. Just like you can't pour water in your gas tank and replace the oil with sugar and expect the car to run, you can't go jacking with God's design for this world and expect the world to run. 
You can't kick the legs out of chairs and expect the chair to still hold you up. You can't dig the foundations out of a tower and expect the tower to still stand. This is God's world, and God's world was made to run in God's way. Bad ideologies bring chaos. Order turns to chaos and ugly chaos. When every man does what is right in his own eyes. Remember, Marxism resulted in, this is a conservative number, 110 million people dying and a great many of them due to starvation. Bad ideologies bring insanity and chaos. The worse the ideology, the worse the chaos. It wrecks and destroys people's lives. And let me also say at the end of that there, the suicide numbers from those who, who live out the gender theory, the suicide numbers are unbelievable. They don't even seem possible. They're so high. A fool, one study that was done, this is a 50-year study studying, this is, so this is not some quick little sampling, a 50-year study that was done studying thousands of transgender individuals showed this, that a full 40% of them at some point attempted suicide. There is no other category in the world that I am aware of that has suicide numbers that high. But let me also say this, you won't hear that statistic and you will hear doctored statistics. Because the way that some of it will work is, instead of promoting that, the way that it will be reported is, are things like bullying is resulting in all of these suicide numbers. You see what they did there? It's the bait and switch. It's, it's, the, it's the constant back and forth. It's those ugly Christians and their repressive views that's causing all the bullying. That's why there is this. And so instead of seeing the actual root, there is the blaming. That's straight out of Nietzsche's handbook. Well, let me come number four to application. Application. Let me say a couple words of application. First to all believers, and then I got a specific word to parents. First to all believers. Um, Christian. We must regularly speak truth. Left and right, up and down, every day, day after day, we must speak truth and say it again and say it again. We must regularly speak truth. Now, I'm also going to add on to this in just a second that we need to do so in a way that makes Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom look glorious and beautiful as they are, which means there's a certain way we ought to say certain things. But let me first start with, we have to say truth. We have to speak truth. There's a principle that exists in this world and the principle is, whatever we do not speak against, we give some kind of affirmation to. Whatever evil we do not address, we give some kind of allowance for it. You've seen this, parents, you see this, this is our life, okay? Uh, the, the, the life of young children is, I'm gonna take a step to test the waters and I'm gonna see if dad says anything. If dad doesn't, well, I'm going to live here and then tomorrow I'm going to take another step, okay? And then, oh, dad said something, I'll back up and I'll try it again tomorrow, okay? Like, you know what this is, okay? This is the, the constant testing of the waters. Same thing happened, think of it in a church family. If there is a married couple in the church who gets a divorce and nobody says anything about it, nobody addresses the sin, nobody has the conversations, and we all know why, because it's uncomfortable and it's difficult and we don't want to be mean, we don't want to make anybody feel bad, and all those kinds of things. We don't have the conversations. What does that result in? 
What it results in is that a sermon is preached by the silence. In other words, it becomes the idea that that's allowable. Nobody logically says it out, but they think it in their hearts. It's allowable and it's fine. Evil is like those weeds, unwanted trees and briars that want to invade your yard from the edges. If when you mow your grass, if you just keep mowing around it, what'll keep happening is it keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and one day you will find it has taken over the yard. There has to be the difficult work of, of pushing back evil. One of the reasons why we are in the situation we are as a culture, I'll start there, as a culture, is not just because of those who have been pushing for these radical kinds of ideas. It is because of a generation of weak-willed men who wouldn't speak truth, and there was a constant just pacifying of saying, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be the recipient of ill treatment. Bringing order out of chaos, battling evil means we have to constantly be speaking truth. We have to say it. We have to say it. We can't just let it go. Did you, did you know the percentage of the population, I'm talking as a culture, the percentage of the population that were pushing for these ideas, even as recently as just five years ago, it was tiny. I mean tiny, but they were loud and they demanded and they marched and people pacified and stayed silent. And now it is spreading. All of that, by the way, can also have application to the church as well because we face similar kinds of temptations. Where we do not speak against evil, there is allowance that is given for these things. And so what this means is in the break room at work, when there's this conversation, there must be speaking. In the classroom, you, you, you youth, I know it's gonna take courage. I know, I know like, like you, you may feel sick to your stomach to be the one to raise your hand and give disagreement, but this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. When the school sends home literature with this nonsense in it, it's time to speak. We must be constantly speaking truth in all kinds of different ways. It's not always just disagreement. Sometimes it's just affirming, look at the beauty of God's design. We must speak. A lot of times, we want to say what's brilliant. Thank God for those voices that God gives, empowers the church, and they say really brilliant things, and we can take some of the things they say and repeat them. We always want to say brilliant things, and we should work hard to, to be as winsome, intelligent, and knowledgeable as we possibly can be. But we also need to know a lot of times we don't have the brilliant thing to say. We just need to say, no, that's not right. And even something simple, disagreement speaks volumes because when the literature is passed out and nobody says anything, allowance is given. Allowance is given. There must be speaking. But let me also add in just as much with this here. Christian, we are to hate with a passion godless ideologies, but we are to be warm-hearted people who love people. We, we are to remember the people who have been deceived by gender theory. They're people. They're people made in the image of God. And we are to show compassion like Jesus showed compassion. Remember, Jesus who battled the Pharisees and called them vipers, 
He also, it's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. He looked on crowds and said, it says that he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, okay? We are to be warm-hearted people. So we, we are to speak truth, but don't neglect compassion. Have compassion, but don't neglect truth. You know, each one of us has ways that we struggle with, maybe either one or the other. You know, there's always that that illustration, we can fall off one side of the horse or the other, too tough or too tender. We need to balance both. Jesus modeled both. Jesus modeled tenacity, but also compassion. And do remember some of the very people that Jesus showed the most compassion to. He showed a lot of compassion to people who had been in sexual sin. He called them to repentance. He called them hard. Go and sin no more. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But he also would say, woman, your sins are forgiven. You go and sin no more. There was was grace. There was compassion. It's a tough thing to be able to do both well. It's a hard thing to boldly speak truth, but also have warm hearts. We need to do our best to keep working to bring these two together though. When we speak, we, winsomeness is beautiful. Winsomeness is beautiful, showing people the beauty of God's design. Now, secondly, let me, let me address parents just briefly. I am winding down, I promise. Parents, let me, let me say a few things to you. First, I, I, I repeat and sound this trumpet again that I keep sounding. Win your children. Win your children. Do not assume that because you are a Christian, they will automatically believe what you believe. Do not assume that because you have read certain books and you became convinced of certain ideas that your children know all of those things that were in the book, unless you tell them what was in the book and the conclusions that you came to. It is a reality. Many Christians are losing their children to the spirit of the age, whatever it is that week. You know, it changes week to week, whatever it is that week. There's always some way that the world is opposing Christ and his truth. And if we were to let that scenario that I talked about in the introduction play out in our lives, if we let our kids just go watch TV in the evenings and let them play all night on their phones and we're not engaging in significant kinds of instruction and conversation. We're just letting that the main preaching that they're getting be from the world. You bring them to church, wonderful. Okay, if you only bring them on like Sunday mornings, they get one hour. They'll, they'll get five times that much on Monday night if you just let them go. There has to be a way we reorder the household. We reorder what we families do in the home. We need to be filtering the worldview stories that they're getting. I'm not saying don't ever do it because it can be really effective to watch a movie with them and show, okay, here's what's stupid about that. And notice, what, what, why did they say that right there? What is the worldview behind these things? If you're pointing out the belief behind the story, that can be incredibly helpful, okay? But we have to do something different than what the world is doing. There has to be instruction in the home. And let me call for this just very practical application. It seems so simple, but in large ways, it's not happening. We need to build cultures in our households of conversation. Conversation, I mean, think about how simple that is. Conversation is another form of teaching. And in the family, it might be the primary. Conversation. We sometimes talk about how, how much work Satan does uh, to keep us from having quiet time because really good things happen when we just get quiet, turn the TV off and think, okay? 
Look at how much he's doing to try to keep families from talking. The phones, the devices, and the, and the quality family time of watching TV all night. Look what he's doing to eliminate conversation. So let me, let me give the call, the charge, the appeal. Make conversation to be a regular part of your household. Deep conversation. Talk about the word. Talk about philosophy. Talk, talk about where ideas came from. Talk about Nietzsche. Talk about where, where ideologies fit into and worldviews. Uh, talk, talk about things in the news and ask your kids, what do, you, what do you think of this? What would you say to somebody who believed this? When you come up with a, a conclusion in your mind, tell your kids the conclusion you came to and, and insights you see from the scripture. Make this regular table fair, good and deep conversation. Make it normal, make it regular, make it the culture of your family. Conversation around truth, build that kind of atmosphere. We need to make our homes an oasis from the world, a place where love, joy, laughter, and truth abound. Let's build that kind of atmosphere. All Christians, let's be ready to make a defense. Let's be ready to make a defense. We're not here as vacationers, we're here as soldiers. And one day we'll stand before the master and give account for our lives. And if you have never turned from your sins to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ for that first time, turning to him to be saved, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God who made all of this in all of its beauty and glory, the God who created male and female, the God who breathed life into you, knit you in your mother's womb, the God whose law governs this world, you are going to stand before him one day and you are not inherently right with him right now. You have the same condition that all the rest of us have. You are a sinner. You've rebelled against his rule. You are not a good person. The Bible says that you have rebelled against him and there is none who is good. There is none who is righteous. All have fallen short. All in Adam, all who are born in this world and have sinned against God must be saved. You must be saved from your sin, must be saved from the hell that you deserve. God sent Jesus for this purpose and now invites you. You can come and have eternal life. You can come and have forgiveness of sins by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call out to him, believe on his name, and you will be saved. If you want to talk about that with somebody, please find me before you leave. I'd be happy to have that conversation. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord God in heaven, we love you and thank you. We thank you for the grace that you've given. I ask God now, help us. We, we want desperately to go and be useful. We're going to leave these doors in a bit and we're going to go live in this world. We pray, give us opportunities for conversations. Make us to be useful vessels, oh God. We pray, Lord, that you will um, uh, give us words to speak in the moments. Bless the families in the church to grow and flourish. Any in the room that's not yet turned to Christ, please give them faith. Bring them to a place of salvation. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.